you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com, and while you're at it, like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you want to contact me, feel free to send me an email at Matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Finally, if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. If you pledge $1 on Patreon, you will get access to a backlog of tons of exclusive pre-show episodes recorded specifically for Patreon supporters spread across all three of my podcasts. Um, so yeah, um, welcome to season three. Um, it's been a long time coming, but I'm finally at season three of the Twilight Zone and anthology proper. Um, I started this podcast way back in, I think, 2015. And it's now 2020, so um, at this rate, I don't know when I'll finish the series, but I'm super excited to dive into Season 3 of The Twilight Zone. And as such, today on the show, I'll be discussing two. It's the first episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on September 15th, 1961. And I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 11, Marked Danger. Um, yeah, and before I get to the episode and everything, I just want to say thank you to um, everyone who made season two of Anthology so fun and exciting and um, worthwhile, I guess. I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, No, but thank you to uh, Dan and Anna from uh, Between Science and Superstition for coming on and joining me for a season two wrap up of the CBS All Access uh, series. So thank you guys. And also thank you to Brandon Cruz for coming on from from submitted for your approval podcast uh, for coming on and talking about season two of the original series in a wrap up episode. I really appreciate that. And then finally, thank you to my friend tiny and co-host of my other podcasts, obsessive viewer and tower junkies for coming on and uh, talking about Rod Serling's uh, scripted seven days in May movie. So um, yeah, now um, <laughs> now we're back to just me guys. <laughs> um, I hope you guys, uh, didn't get a taste for having multiple voices on this podcast because now it's just me again. Um, okay. So <laughs> let's get into this episode guys. Um, yeah, as usual, I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode of the twilight zone, um, that I'm reviewing this week. So I'm going to be spoiling two. Um, so that's, that's your warning. If you haven't watched it, go check it out, come back and listen to the episode. Um, I will not be spoiling much of the science fiction theater episode that I'm, I'll be reviewing later. So just fair warning there. Um, all right. So as I start with normally every episode, um, <laughs> I've been, I've been in the twilight zone reboot structure of the podcast so much that it's, it's weighing on me here. Uh, so it's a little difficult to jump back to the original series. So as always, I'm going to go ahead and read a plot summary courtesy of the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And again, this is going to spoil the entire episode of two. So fair warning. All right. Spoiler warnings are done. And here is a plot summary for two. 
A war-torn city of weeds and rubble lies dormant from the effects of a great war. Chemical warfare and a bomb leveled much of the countryside. Two uniformed strangers, a man and a woman, wander the streets scavenging for food. There are no more boundaries, governments, or causes, the man rationalizes. The only reason for fighting now is the different colors of their uniforms. The woman cannot speak English, but displays a strange or displays a strong instinct of hatred bred into her from years of war and is cautious regarding his every move. After she uses a weapon against him and misses, the man gives up trying to tame the wild animal and leaves. In the morning, she returns with forgiveness in her eyes and wearing a dress from a store window display. Realizing there is hope, the two walk out of the town together. So, two obviously has kind of a bare-bones cast, obviously. Um, just has two actors. Uh, it stars Elizabeth Montgomery as the woman. And this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. She was in Serling's highly acclaimed drama Patterns, previous to this. And she's most known for her role in Bewitched. And I forgot to look up exactly what role that was. I don't know if she is, like, the lead or, or what, because I've never watched Bewitched. But she's known for her role in Bewitched. And as far as other sci-fi anthology shows, she appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond. And then also in this episode, as the man, is Charles Bronson. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. He was in the Rod Serling scripted Playhouse 90 episode, The Rank and File, which aired on May 28th, 1959. Um, that episode, I think, is kind of lost to time. I, I don't think it's available anywhere to find, which is a real shame because I want to watch a bunch of different Serling stuff, but I can't. Um, Charles Bronson is, uh, very notable. He's a notable actor known for roles in The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, Death Wish, and its sequels, and Once Upon a Time in the West. And he also appeared in the movie Master of the World, which was based on a Jules Verne story that was adapted by Richard Matheson. It was actually my bonus review for my season one episode covering the, uh, the Twilight Zone episode, The Last Flight. You can find that at anthologypod.com slash zero one three. Um, Charles Bronson also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond. And a cool piece of trivia that I found was that he, in uh, back in the 1940s, he shared a room with Jack Klugman in a New York boarding house. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. And that just made me think about Jack Klugman in A Passage for Trumpet and how much I just loved his performance there. And I, for some reason, I thought, oh, it's going to be a while before we get another Jack Klugman episode. Because for some reason, I thought that he only appeared in A Passage for Trumpet and an episode in Season 5. But I looked it up, and I am just delighted to know that uh, we'll be seeing him in a few weeks in the episode of Game of Pool. So I'm super excited for that, because I really, uh, really loved his performance in A Passage for Trumpet. So I'm excited to see more of him in The Twilight Zone. Writer and director for this episode was Montgomery Pittman. Uh, this is his first of three episodes as a writer for the show. Uh, he also wrote The Grave and The Last Rites of uh, Jeff Myrtlebank, which both are in season three of the show. And this is his second of five directed episodes. Uh, we previously saw his work in Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And the next time we will be covering his work is in the episode The Grave, which should be in a few weeks, I think. So that's all the uh, talent rundown I have. So as I, before I get into my full on review, let me just share my thoughts or what I knew about the show going into it 
um, before watching it. So kind of the premise of the episode, if this is like your first time uh, listening to Anthology, um, I've never seen The Twilight Zone, so I'm going through it episode by episode, and I like to kind of record my thoughts about the show and my first impressions of the show and then also beforehand jot down some notes about what i know about the episode just from pop culture and everything so i was very excited because as far as two is concerned i knew nothing at all like zero about it the title itself is very vague and i hadn't caught wind of any pop culture references to this episode that i was aware of so i was kind of like going into this this episode and by extension, the season as a whole, um, I was really excited because I think that that's a really fun and exciting position to be in at the beginning of a full season of The Twilight Zone. Um, and I, I just kind of a feather in my cap. Um, I put in my notes, I wonder if it is an episode about two people, maybe or not. I don't know. Um, so, I mean... I mean, that's an easy guess, but I was delighted that I was right. So I was really excited because I, I had no idea what to expect from this episode. Um, so how did I feel about the episode? Well, let me go ahead and bring us into my review of two. So obviously the first thing that I noticed going into this episode of the Twilight Zone is the new opening, uh, the new opening segment or opening, uh, theme music, not music. Oh my God. The, <laughs> the opening credits, um, of the Twilight Zone. So season three changes it up a little bit. There's an, uh, the swirling vortex is, is in the, is the first thing we see. And it's, it is finally here. Um, so after two seasons, we get the swirling vortex that has become a very big, uh, piece of iconography about the Twilight Zone or related to the Twilight Zone. Um, the opening, uh, voiceover from Serling has not changed that much. Instead of saying that's a signpost up ahead, he says, uh, uh, your next stop, the Twilight Zone, I think. And then finally, the actual title card of the Twilight Zone is different, uh, than it has been before. It's, um, I don't know what font it is. It's a different font, but I, I gotta say, I don't know if it's because of the HD transfer. I've been watching these on, uh, well, I've wa- I watched these episodes so many times, but I've been watching them on DVD and then also on CBS All Access and, and, uh, Amazon Prime and all that. Um, I did, I did notice that just the title and the kind of swirling vortex, they look very crisp and clear. Um, so it just, it just looks kind of shiny. I, I like it a lot. So right off the bat, we get Rod Serling's opening narration, and it's a pretty lengthy one. I'll go ahead and play that narration here, and then I'll comment on it after it. So here is Rod Serling's opening narration for the first episode of Season 3. This is a jungle, a monument built by nature honoring disuse, commemorating a few years of nature being left to its own devices. But it's another kind of jungle, the kind that comes in the aftermath of man's battles against himself. Hardly an important battle, not a Gettysburg or a Marne or an Iwo Jima. More like one insignificant corner patch in the crazy quilt of combat. But it was enough to end the existence of this little city. It's been five years since a human being walked these streets. This is the first day of the sixth year, as man used to measure time. The time, perhaps a hundred years from now, or sooner, or perhaps it's already happened two million years ago. The place, the signposts are in English, 
so that we may read them more easily. But the place is the Twilight Zone. So, like I said, this is a pretty lengthy opening narration, and it's kind of segmented. There's a, there, it, there's a break when the woman enters the scene, and then it comes back. I kind of thought for a second, like, oh, that's interesting. He's not on screen, and then he popped up on screen. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so it's lengthy, but it's needed. Like, I, I like the wording of it. It's it's very just beautifully written and everything. Um. It's lengthy, but it's still engaging and it draws us in. And like, this could have just been a brief, like, oh, hey, this is the world after a war and it's everything's devastated. It could have just been kind of a generic introduction that way. But instead, we get more context and, and texture to the world. And I really appreciate that because the first nine minutes of the show is just completely free of dialogue. So by having this kind of lengthy, kind of poetically written, uh, opening narration, we're drawn in by that narration, and then our interest is carried on through the two performances and the set design and everything. So it's a good primer to get us kind of um, invested in what's going to happen and intrigued about what's going to happen. Because like I said, I had no idea what to expect from this episode. So when there was like no dialogue for the first nine minutes, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of uh, reminded me a lot of, uh, of the invaders. And it's just interesting that they kind of went that same sort of route in terms of, um, the execution of the episode. Um, another thing I want to mention about the opening narration is that he references a few different battles. Um, so he says, uh, but it's another kind of jungle, the kind that comes in the aftermath of man's battles against himself. Hardly an important battle, not a Gettysburg or a Marne or an Iwo Jima. Now, I had not heard of the Battle of Marne. Um, so I went ahead and looked it up and everything. Um, apparently it's from World War II, or not, I'm sorry, World War One, and it, uh, was a turning point for the war. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I, I learned something new. Um, and also I think that that is indicative of just how, like, I went to a public school and everything, and like, I feel like public school does not teach enough about World War One because I am in the dark about World War One, and I think that that is a real shame. Um, because obviously it was a big deal. Yeah. So, con- continuing uh, commenting on the opening narration, um. I'm not going to pick it apart line by line, but I am going to single out this one line. This stands out to me pretty, pretty hard. So he says the time, perhaps a hundred years from now or sooner, or perhaps it already happened two million years ago. The place, the signposts are in English so that we may read them more easily, but the place is the twilight zone. And that excerpt really stood out to me because I feel like it's calling attention to the story we're about to watch as a metaphor for just human like interaction and everything and a metaphor for um, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about in the review, but like um, kind of military programming and, and deprogramming in and returning to normal as best you can and everything. But what I like about that is that this is obviously written in 1961. And like I said, it's calling attention to the story we're about to watch as a metaphor so it does that in a way that's not condescending or anything. And I kind of wondered, like, I, I don't know if, like, the nitpicking critiques were as common then as they are now, but I love how, like, the, the line about the signpost being in English kind of just supplants that, uh, those kind of nitpick criticisms. Um, because 
one of the things, so I, like, I've been doing this thing, this, I've been doing podcasting and, and kind of film criticism and stuff for the last seven years at this point. And I have encountered a lot of just, uh, uh for lack of a better word, shitty criticism. <laughs> like, it's just, it's people picking apart little tiny things here and there. I'm guilty of it myself, but like, people writing off an entire episode of television or an entire movie because, the they refuse to follow the interior logic of that like piece of media like little things like that just irk me because they're just missing the point entirely um case in point one of my favorite if not my absolute favorite episode from season one of the cbs all access twilight zone replay um i think i still think that's a brilliantly written uh commentary on uh, race, systemic racism in America and the Black Lives Matter movement and everything. But people were just looking at it at the surface level, wondering like, oh, why is the cop chasing them? Why does the cop want to kill them so much? It's like, okay, well, the cop is a metaphor for systemic racism in the United States. Like, how can you not see that? So anyway, anyway, I don't know if those kinds of critiques and everything were uh, prevalent in the 1960s, but I like that the... Uh, that the opening narration kind of, kind of, I wouldn't say pokes fun at it because I don't have any context for whether or not it was intentional or conscious or anything, or if it's something that I'm projecting onto it. But I just like the thought that, uh, people can't say like, oh, well, what, what country is this even in? Or, or when is it or whatever? Um, how do, how is it in English or whatever? Because Rod Serling kind of heads that off at the pass or at the beginning. So that's cool. Um, also, the beginning of it where he references the city as a jungle, um, I thought that that was a good way to prep us for the kind of sparse dialogue that's going to be uh, in this episode. Like the um, the plot summary from Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, I kind of, I don't know how I feel about it, but <laughs> like... Uh, where where he says where it says the man gives up trying to tame the wild animal and leaves like yeah Elizabeth Montgomery is playing the role as kind of a feral person to an extent but it also feels like it's more it's less less of an instinctual animal reaction and in my opinion it's more just a programmed by military like military programming wartime programming kind of person that's coming like waking up to the new reality but i'll get into all of that later on in this review um so i think finally um <laughs> the final thing about the narration is that um i like that the narration says uh this is the first day of the sixth year um at least how man used to measure time. And I think that that phrasing is just so good. It just gives the faintest hint and the most subtle hint of the kind of hopelessness of a dead city and by extension, a dead earth. Um, it's just, it's so bleak. Um, just to say that it's been five years since men walked to the city streets and this is the first day of the sixth year, at least by how man used to measure time. It's just, it's so bleak. It's so well establishing. It's establishing so well the destitute nature of the world that we're brought into in the Twilight Zone in this episode. I just think that was really clever and really, um, really good and, uh, really good writing. So, uh, yeah, so the woman enters the city and we're off to the episode. And, uh, 
it's worth noting that we get a title card for the episode. Um, this is the first time in the series history that the title appears on screen. And that is something that I know for a fact, obviously, is repeated in the reboot from uh, from CBS All Access, and then also the UPN one does it too. I want to say that the uh, CB or that the '80s Twilight Zone does it. I'm almost positive it does, but um, but yeah. So it was it was cool to see that. Um, yeah, and so right off the bat, I, I've got to admit, I don't know if this is me like just casually being misogynistic um unintentionally but in my notes when i saw the woman i was like is the woman a government official um uh i just thought like and then obviously as i watched it subsequent times um it she's not she's a soldier she's she's part of the war and everything and i just thought like is that kind of misogynistic on my part just unintentionally um because i just thought okay she's maybe it's just in my subconscious it's like okay a woman in a government uniform means that she's a government official and not a soldier um i don't know so i'll cop to that if that's casual misogyny on my part and i'll do better but anyway so she's a soldier and i got the intent or i got the uh the idea or i got the um um i got the i can't remember the word i'm thinking of but i uh I think I thought I think maybe she might have been a medic, uh, just based on the emblem that's on the back of her uniform. I didn't really get a good look at it. It looks kind of like the the medic symbol, but a little different. And that might be because it is hundred years in the future or two million years in the past. Um, it's just ambiguous, uh, ambiguous that way. So I don't know. So she's walking around the around the just empty city, and she sees a movie theater and on the marquee, uh, kind of a small marquee, it says war news, actual films of enemy foot troops landing. So that's just assume that's just establishing that, you know, this was a war torn city as we, as we know it. And the wartime newsreels, uh, I thought it was interesting that seeing like advertising for wartime newsreels. Um, I don't know if that was something that, um, was like on the marquees and movie theaters back in like the world war two days and everything. Um, but I just thought it was kind of interesting that they're, um, trying to bring in viewers, um, by showing the news footage of, uh, of troops landing in the country. And so she wanders around some more and she sees the mannequin with the dress um, and this comes into play later, obviously. And what something that I noticed, and again, I don't know if this is intentional or just a, just a coincidence, but next to the mannequin, there's another mannequin. And that mannequin has the side of its head just broken apart. And it looks like just brains. Um, and that kind of struck me, just the imagery of that. If it's intentional, like, holy crap, that's um, just really intense imagery of war and everything. And then it also struck me because, man, that like it, it's, if you interpret it that way, that the way that I did, that it's like the brains coming out of the mannequin, like, holy crap. Like if that was intentional, good on them for getting past the sensors. Like I, that's why I'm so like struggling whether or not it's, it's intentional or unintentional because it's, it's kind of, it seems really graphic for the time. So I think maybe I, I might just be projecting something onto it that isn't there, but 
if it's intentional, like, holy crap, that was, it really stood out to me. I thought it was really cool imagery or really interesting imagery to, to also really compound the desolation of the city and the emptiness of the city, um, as a kind of a visual motif to like what has happened and everything. And the episode's filled with that stuff. It's, it's really remarkable. The set design is really remarkable. In the trivia, I'm going to talk about how it's repurposed, um, repurposing the, uh, the, um, Oh God, what is the name of it? <laughs> the set. Oh wow. Uh, Hal Roach Studios in Culver City. Um, and just, I, like, I, the set design and stuff is just really remarkable and everything. It really does a great job of, of doing that. And it's interesting because they didn't really have to do much, which I'll talk about in the trivia. But, uh, what they did was just really, really remarkable visual storytelling. Um, and a great way to just bring us, draw us more into this world. Um, even more into the world than the opening narration did. Like, it's just hitting us with these visuals. And it's just, it's, we, we're not getting like any shocked reactions from the woman, obviously, because this is just the way of life now. But just the, uh, stimuli that's, going into our brains is just telling us so much about it. And I just really, uh, I really enjoyed it for that. I thought that that was really, um, really great storytelling in the visual medium. So, so far at this point, so far this episode has the feel of where is everybody? Cause she's wandering the city alone. And also King nine will not return. Um, just because, you know, wartime kind of, uh, isolated person. And I thought that, that was fitting since, this is the first episode of the season. And I just think that that's really interesting how that worked out that the first episode of the first three seasons are all kind of about isolation and being alone and, um, finding, finding truth or whatever. Um, it's just really interesting. And I, I, from what I understand, it's, I, it wasn't intentional. I don't think, cause I don't think this was intended to be the first episode of the season. Um, I'll check, I think I might have something in my notes for trivia for that, but, um, but yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting how that worked out. And I'm curious what the season premieres of, uh, seasons four and five are going to be like. Um, but I'll get to that probably in another three years. <laughs> I shouldn't joke like that. I really hope that it doesn't take me three years because I really love doing this. Anyway, so the woman starts kind of scavenging for food. She, uh, sees, uh, the restaurant and she goes in. And another cool thing of the set design that I, that I really like, like, obviously, like, it's all cobwebs and it's just very dusty and, and, um, just overgrown. Um, I love those kind of elements to the set design and everything. But what kind of took this episode or took it even a step further was when she grabs the can and she sees the, like, what looks like a giant spider moving on the, on the counter. Um, and she smashes it with, with the can. And that's really cool. Like it was a nice and gross touch, but it also shows, it gives us a hint of her kind of, um, kind of just abrasive attitude toward everything. Like she is acting on instinct. She is a survivalist. She's trying to survive the world and she doesn't trust anything as we come to find out. But here in this moment, it's a good kind of, uh, piece of foreshadowing that like she just kills this spider or this thing because who knows it could be a threat to her and so she just she kills it without uh regard and then the man enters and 
again, she just immediately attacks him. And at this point, I clocked it. I was like, there's no dialogue yet. This is interesting. <laughs> um, and so they start fighting. And like, w- when I say that she attacks him, she starts throwing everything at him. A, uh, a, some kind of glass, I think. And like, um, um, a meat cleaver and just anything she can grab she just throws at him and it's like it's with murderous intent she's trying to kill him and then they start fighting and it's it's an intense fight and i thought it was really a, a nice touch that they had the the table that kind of broke when they when they were wrestling around and everything that was just like that coupled with the complete absence of music in this scene, but like there was no music in this, in this fight sequence. And then they break that table and it's just like the sound of that table is the score of that fight. And it's just violent and it's just, just overcomes everything. Like it over, overtakes the soundtrack and everything. And it was just really immersive and, uh, and really, really cool. And the actual fight again is intense. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's like violent. It's, it's really violent. And then he gets the upper hand and just knocks her out cold. <laughs> um, and she just gets, she gets knocked down to the ground and she's, she's knocked out entirely. Um, and I'm curious if like any people are, uh, going to be offended by that or anything. Like I kept thinking throughout this episode, I kept thinking like, <laughs> uh, thinking about it in terms of like now in 2020 and how I could see like, I could see like the internet trying to cancel Rod Serling and say like, Oh, uh, they had, uh, there was a woman in, in this episode and she only had one line of dialogue. Um, and she only said one word and it was pretty. And it's like, okay, I, I'll talk more about the kind of gender dynamics in this episode, but I kind of chuckled to myself thinking about how some, uh, some people might get offended by it, which I will make the argument that they shouldn't, um, because it's a 1961 episode of television and the things that we could see as offensive today or as, as, uh, I guess offensive is the right word, um, today aren't necessarily the intention of this episode. So I'll get to that later. I don't want to get too sidetracked. So after the man knocks her out, um, he goes for the food and he starts to eat. Um, and what I thought was interesting is that he tosses the trash away. He, he, he tosses the trash aside. So he eats the, like, I don't know, like a wing or something. And then he just tosses the bones away. And then he does that later as he's wandering through the town and he just tosses it away. And I, I just wanted to clock that here because later I'll talk about how she throws the garbage in the trash. Um, and I just thought that that was an interesting kind of visual, uh, representation of the two of them and how different they are, which is interesting because it's in contrast to how they are in terms of like their, in terms of like their characters and everything. Like she is this instinctual survivalist person and he is this person that is just tired of fighting and wants to bring back the normal world and everything. Yet he is the one that's just tossing the trash aside without, without regard to like littering or anything like that. And maybe that's an extension of him being just over this whole war and everything. Like he's, he's tired. He's tired of fighting. He's tired of the war humanity lost. So it's kind of a nihilistic way, uh, or nihilistic viewpoint that he just, he's just tossing it because what's the point of, of cleaning things up? And maybe that's the, maybe that's the intention that that's, that's what he, uh, represents in that moment where he try when he throws the trash to the side. And that maybe it's not until he like sees the, the magazine and the calendar and everything that he realizes that like, okay, this woman is, is hope for 
like an actual like rebuilding society. Maybe not rebuilding society, but actually returning to normal normalcy or or what have you. But I'll talk about that later, that later in contrast to um, how she reacts to the to the garbage and everything. So. Um, as he's eating and everything, he is wandering around the, uh, shop that they're in and he picks up a newspaper and this episode, like this episode has so much just nice, like touches of set design and, and, uh, exposition through visual, um, visual stuff in the episode. So he picks up a newspaper and the headline in big bold letters is enemy threatens to break big bomb code. And then immediately after that, he looks over and he sees this bird cage. He moves the newspaper over the top of it. And we see that the birds in the cage are just skeletons. And that is telling us that there has been a nuclear destruction, some kind of chemical warfare, some kind of bomb, um, that has decimated the world. And that is why, we're in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. And I just love that. Like I've, I talk a lot on this podcast about the way that the show economizes its storytelling and how we get so much information within a 24 to 25 minute episode. And this is a prime example of that because we just see, it's just so elegant. We see the newspaper headline and then we see the freaking, like the, the horrifying imagery of the birds in the cage that are just skeletons and that tells us everything we need to know about the outcome of the war and what happened and it's just it's just really remarkable storytelling i i absolutely love it for that so the man leaves and he starts wandering around the town and in this moment charles bronson is playing the role he looks like he's more comfortable in the ruins and everything like he just looks like he is just at peace in this, uh, in this moment. That was at least my first read of it. Then he speaks later in the episode and it's, it's a little bit in contrast to that. So, um, he sees, he, first he sees the calendar and then looks at the woman. So he sees the, the kind of pinup girl in the, in the, in the calendar. And then he looks back at the woman and everything. And then later he sees the mannequin and then looks back at the restaurant where the woman is. And for a moment, like in my notes I have, is he, is he considering like, if he is he considering like raping her um but it's not that it's not it's not that um it's more that he is that's his realization those those images that he sees is his realization that that this woman could represent like an actual return to normalcy for him and and like he could have like a normal life and everything so um, he's wandering around some more and then he picks up a newspaper, big bold letters, evacuate city and everything. And then that's when he sees the magazine. Um, so yeah. And that's when he looks back at the magazine or uh, back at the restaurant again. And that's when he goes back, goes back to it and back to her. And he just, he's remembering what the normal world was and how it was. And what I found interesting is that it seems like it's, it's kind of like he's remembering like what the, I don't know. So, like I said before, this is going to be kind of a, an awkward transition, but uh, the idea of, like, 60s gender roles, like, that's a thing, sure. Like, like he's remembering how normal the world was at that point, and he's seeing, like, the woman as, you know, a pinup girl or, or like, um, like, someone on a magazine or whatever. And, like, sure, 60s gender roles were, you know, not as progressive as today, obviously, but the sentiment is still there. Like the two characters have been, I think what supersedes that is that the two characters have been programmed by their respective militaries. And this episode is all about them shedding that programming. And then 
like I'll get into more of that later, but I just thought that that was a really, um, a really powerful piece of storytelling in the, in this episode is that, that kind of arc that the, both of the characters go through is just really represented well. And to get back to my kind of first impressions of this episode at this moment, um, I had in my notes, like, are these characters representative of Adam and Eve? And, um, the spoiler alert, they're not, I don't think they're meant to be that way. Um, I don't think there are any overtly biblical ties to this episode. Like, I, I don't know what Montgomery Pittman's, uh, religious leanings were, or if he put anything in there for religious, uh, intent or anything. I'm not a religious person, but I, I know kind of the earmarks of Christianity and everything. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, but I don't know if that was intentional or, I don't know if that was the intent, but I don't think it was. But at that moment, I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Is it like there, is this going to be an Adam and Eve story? And it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. I, I don't know. Um, but I'm, I don't have enough knowledge to really dive into that or, or project onto that, <laughs> project onto the episode that kind of, uh, theme and, and everything. So, uh, so he goes back to her and, what I found interesting, again, we have no dialogue. Uh, he checks her face where he hit her. I think he's trying to like gauge how injured she is. And then he goes through her pockets. <laughs> um, but most, more specifically, he goes for her gun holster. And in the gun holster, she has stuff for her hair. She has like, uh, I think bobby pins and a comb and something else. And I think that that is maybe a hopeful thing for him. Like he sees that and what I'm assuming is going through the character's mind is that he's realizing that she's not too heavily programmed by war and by her military uh, background and everything. Like um, she actually has like some, you know, she, she has pinned in her gun holster relics of, you know, the before time, <laughs> like actually like, taking care of her, her hair, I guess it's a very surface level and everything. But, um, I think that that is a safe bet that that's what he, uh, kind of notices that and that, um, when he goes through the, the gun holster, but also it, it made me wonder if that was why he goes to the barbershop to actually clean himself up. Um, I don't know if that's what, why he did it, but, um, we'll get to that in a second, but here he tries to wake her up. And what I like about this again, just the physical performance and the physical storytelling um, or visual storytelling that takes place in this episode is just remarkable because he tries to wake her up, but first he moves a pot away from her. Um, and it's because he knows that she'll use it as a weapon. I thought that was just really clever, just a clever like character tick that he's about to dump water on her and about to wake her up. But he's like, no, wait, I need to move this pot away. Um, and when, you know, he wakes her up and everything, she's almost completely instinctual in the episode. Like he's like, like she is, uh, she's very much just reactive and she's hesitant and fearful and everything. Um, and just very much acting on instinct, whereas he is in self-preservation mode. And I think that that's an interesting kind of, dichotomy between these two characters or the kind of contrast between the two characters is really interesting. And I thought that was just really good visual um, storytelling and really good characterization for both of those characters. And so after he wakes her up, we're nine minutes into the episode and we get the first lines of the, of dialogue in the episode. So he kicks the can of the uh, 
chicken wings or whatever it was over to her and he says here invader eat um and i just love it i i love what that says too it just immediately just uh informs us that they are two people in a war that were on opposite sides and then he goes on uh like i put in my notes oh they are on opposite sides of the war <laughs> um and he goes on to just tell her um despite you know, obviously she can't understand English. He goes on to tell her that there's no longer any reason for them to fight. And he says specifically, he says, no longer any armies, only rags of various colors that were once uniforms. Two sets of rags we wear. There are no more boundaries, governments, or noble causes. Therefore, no reason to fight. And I think that that is just beautiful. And Charles Bronson, like his speaking voice is just magnetic it's it's amazing um and then he kind of walks over to the side and he looks up at the kind of crashed ceiling and everything and he yells uh to the ether he just yells that he hereby declares that there's peace among the entire world um it's just it's really a great way to kind of also bring us up to speed and to his position and into what their predicament really is and their situation is and then he sits down and he says to her, you're very pretty now that I got to look at you. And again, I could see people taking offense to that <laughs> or reading into it something more nefarious than what it is. Um, and in this line, I think would be more apropos of that read because he says, I'm afraid the only way to convince you of my honorable intentions would be by force. And I'm terribly, terribly sick of fighting. And I feel like that could be read a couple of ways. Um, Again, I don't, I don't think it's like anything so severe as like, uh, like physically dominating her in like a sexual manner or anything. I think it's more that he sees her as someone who is so deeply ingrained in, in the programming of her military background that in order to convince her, uh, that he doesn't want to fight, he would have to basically overtake her and, and, um, I would assume kind of keep her, uh, bound so that, so that she can't attack him until he can convince her that, that he's, he's, he's not wanting to fight or anything. He just wants to live his life and she represents a future for him and humanity. Um, I don't think it's so much him and humanity. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily that he's like thinking like, oh, I can have babies and everything. I don't think it's as, as cut and dry as that. I think it's just more that this is another human being. We used to be on opposite sides and she still wants to kill me, but I just want to move on from the war and move on from fighting and settle down and have a life. Um, I think that that's what he's getting at there. And I think that maybe, maybe I'm putting something more chaste into it than, than what's there or what the intention is, but that's the read that I got. But I think that that's that whole, that whole scene and that whole, um, line, the, like the, I'm terrible, terribly, terribly sick of fighting. And then also earlier, the line about the, uh, two sets of rags we wear, uh, are just really good characterization and really good development of their dynamic. And they also come back to play later, which I'll co come back in play later, and which I'll talk about later in this review. So then he leaves and he goes to the barbershop and he just seems to be just kind of wandering around kind of directionless, but he picks up supplies and starts to shave and everything. And while he's doing that, she finishes eating and uh, she leaves the restaurant. And this is where she throws the garbage away. And I just, again, I thought that was an interesting reversal from him discarding the trash just precariously in, in the uh, in the restaurant. Um, it's just an interesting kind of 
juxtaposition of these two characters that is in contrast with their own kind of position in the in the uh in the story because she is someone who is very much um still in a fighting and uh killing mood yet she is still um caring enough to throw away garbage in a garbage can whereas he is just a a new a born again pacifist and is just like he doesn't care he just throws the trash wherever he is so i thought that was an interesting kind of juxtaposition between the two char- the two characters so it's the twilight zone so we have to have <laughs> a scene involving a mirror um and i thought that this was a really cool shot so he's in the barbershop he's shaving and then you see her entering and then it uh, cuts back to him shaving, and you see him see her entering the barbershop through the reflection in the in the mirror on the wall. And I just thought that, that was that was a cool visual flair for the episode. So he tosses her a bar of soap, and she kind of again, this is a great piece of character uh, development. She throws her a bar of soap, and she just reflexively takes her knife out. Like even before she catches the soap, she is uh, she simultaneously reaching for it to catch it in the air and taking out her knife. It's just really cool. Um, and then she starts washing her face and, and kind of eyeing him and being very, uh, very nervous or, or very aware of him being in proximity of her. And as he starts to leave the barbershop, she runs away from him and she keeps her distance when they're outside. And I just thought that that was just really, really great. Again, characterization and character development, in a good way to kind of develop their dynamic further. So she keeps her distance from him and he's just kind of wandering around. He's not, he's, he's not trying to push anything on her. He's not trying to, to force a connection or force any type of like, um, comfort level onto her or, or from her. He's just letting her kind of wander with him. And that's when they reach the movie theater. And what I thought was cool was that the movie theater, the, uh, first of all, what was cool was that there was a movie theater <laughs> and I'm peek behind the curtain. I'm actually recording this in July. I'm it's July 1st. Um, I'm recording this and banking it while I'm in the midst, midst of reviewing season two of CBS all access is reboot. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I am just missing going to the movie theater. So it was nice to see a movie theater in a TV show. <laughs> um, so anyway, the movie poster outside of the theater is for a movie called Furlough Romance, and it shows a man and a woman on the poster. Um, just establishes that it uh, there there's a lot of wartime films um, playing, and that this is just the world that they live in is this war torn world. And it's also kind of indicative that uh, the like normal society, normal everyday life has is surely gone for a long time, has been gone for a long time. And then we get another kind of horrific, um, piece of imagery. Um, they're wandering around and the man sees a skeleton of a guard or, or a soldier. I'm sorry, a soldier that was standing outside of the theater and he has a rifle and he goes to grab the rifle. She runs up to him and looks. So it's just really quick. Um, I really like just the kind of physical performance in this episode. Uh, she looks over to her right and sees another soldier across the, like, uh, um, uh, on the other side of the box office and she rushes over to him and grabs the rifle and 
they have like a little standoff, like they neither one fire or anything, but they are pointing the guns at each other. And what I thought was really cool about this, like I love the imagery of this moment because when the camera moves back and is on Charles Bronson, we see the poster for furlough romance, but it's not the same poster as it was before. It was a, it's a different poster because it's deeper in the kind of box office area. And the poster that we see is the man and woman that are like they're embracing, like the, the man and woman on the poster are embracing. So the first one we see when he first approaches the theater is just the, the man and woman side by side. Um, the man might have his arm around her. I don't know, but. Then the next one, they're full on embracing. And I just thought that was really interesting imagery to kind of showcase like how, um, kind of a visual metaphor for, uh, what's to come with this, with this man and woman in this episode of the Twilight Zone. So their standoff ultimately ends with no altercation or any, anything. They don't, uh, fire on each other or anything like that. Uh, they kind of just lay down their arms or they keep holding on to the, to the rifles and everything, but they, I think that they kind of see the, the, uh, the fruitlessness of it, the kind of futility of it is the word I was looking for. Um, so they kind of keep wandering the city and they pass by the mannequins, uh, the one that where the mannequin has the dress and everything. And the woman says, uh, I, I put, I tried to put, spell it, pro, uh, uh, phonetically on, in my notes, but she says, uh, procrastina. But I think I think it's procrastiny. Um, actually, I have it later in my notes here. Um, procrastiny, procrastiny. Um, which uh, spoiler for the trivia is the word "pretty" in Russian. So when she says that, it's her only line of dialogue in the episode. He jumps up and gets the dress for her, and he hands her the dress. And again. To an extent, I could see this as reinforcing the gender roles of the time. Um, like, she's a woman, she should be in a dress or whatever. Um, I could see that. But my read of this, my in my own personal opinion, I feel like this is his olive branch. This is a peace offering since they can't communicate verbally. Um, he tells her to put it on not to reinforce gender roles of normal society before the war, but it's, I feel like it's a follow up to his remark about the uniforms they wear being the only reason for them to keep fighting. So it's his way of communicating peace to her and like kind of just having her uh, just saying like, Hey, we don't need to wear these uniforms anymore because the world is gone. <laughs> um, that's my read of it. Maybe I'm a little too, uh, uh, nice to it. I don't know, but I don't know. That's my take on it. So she goes into the recruitment center. Um, and just, I was just so struck by how universal and nondescript the signs are. Like there's not enough information on it. Like in the, like in the restaurant earlier, the calendar, it doesn't have the year posted. Um, in the, and also I freeze framed the newspapers that we saw. There's no dates or anything on the newspapers or any identifying marks of, of what kind of country it is or anything like that. And when she goes into the recruiting office, you see the sign outside is just nondescript in regard to what country it is. It just says your country needs you and everything. And like, on one hand, yeah, it could, <laughs> that's obviously anyone reading that will know what country it is, but it's also not branding like, oh, this is the, this is the United States military or this is, <clears throat> or this is like in Great Britain or anything like that. 
um, just the nondescript nature of the signage and the newspapers and the calendars and everything and the magazine, um, it just really brings home that anywhere quality of the setting that Serling um, alluded to in the opening narration. And I just really appreciated it for that. So she goes into the recruiting office and she's there alone, obviously. She goes in there to put on the dress and she gets distracted by the recruitment posters. Um, so the posters she sees says, be one of our infant infantry heroes. Um, another one says, join our elite tank corps. And the other one is just for the air corps. And then she sees one that says the en- the enemy meets our troops. And I think that it has like the, uh, just, it shows prisoners of war. I think I'm not, I'm not sure. I couldn't really tell exactly what it shows, but I thought that this was this was maybe the most important scene in the entire episode, especially when you consider that the this episode seems to be about deprogramming this military mindset, this military programming, this wartime mindset, like taking it's about being so um overcome by wartime actions and attitudes and surviving a conflict of a military conflict and then coming back to a world free of that, like completely um, absent of warfare and deprogramming that and, and coming to terms with that. Um, what's amazing to me is like this, like when you look at the episode this way, this sounds like a Serling story. Like This is sounds like something that Rod Serling would write just because of, you know, his PTSD and everything. But I mean, I think Montgomery Pittman, I don't know his history or anything, but um, he tapped into it in a really strong way in, in this episode. And I love this scene in the recruitment center because she sees these posters. She sees this propaganda for it and the, these, this advertising for heroism and everything. And then she sees the one that references the enemy and the enemy is her people, her, like she is the enemy. And that just sets her off. It's, and, and, and again, it's just, it's really interesting. That, that sets her off. And I'll get to the next scene in a little bit, but, um, I just found it really interesting. Also, again, the juxtaposition. So she's seeing the army recruitment images and thinking of him while he saw the calendar girl and magazine model and thought of her. And I thought that that was an interesting kind of, um, if not, if, if not intentional, then just something interesting about the kind of, uh, gender dynamics and, and the, uh, the role of men and women in 1960s society at the time. Um, it's not making an overt statement about gender roles. It's, it's like, this is purely a product of its era. Um, and this is how it's reminding its characters of normal life by just showing what it, what the modern era is like at the time. Um, but I just thought that was a really interesting kind of, um, time capsule of sixties America even though she's technically Russia and he is of no country that we are aware of. Anyway, um, so the propaganda posters and the posters in the recruitment office is showing that she can't, like her reaction to that is showing that she can't see him as anyone other than her enemy. And again, it's about the indoctrination of war, um, military programming and all that, like wartime, um, the toll of war. And coming back as a civilian. Um, 
so she sees the last poster and she runs outside with the gun and shoots at him. And this I thought was really cool because it's a, like a laser gun. <laughs> it's like a science fiction, like futuristic laser, laser gun. Um, I was not prepared for that. I, I just, I just thought it was going to be like just a bullet thing. Um, so I thought that was really cool. That was a really cool way that like this episode doesn't have any supernatural elements or anything like that, but I like that it's still in the science fiction realm by having that laser gun. Um, so I just have in my notes that was surprising and cool. Um, so his reaction to that, he just kind of rolls over and, or, or falls backwards. Um, she doesn't hit him, but he slowly gets up. He, he has a rifle on his shoulder, but he slowly gets up and just walks away. Um, because again, he's tired of fighting. He's terribly, terribly tired of fighting. And he's just become kind of a pacifist. He is, he wants to be a civilian. He wants to be in like a normal world without fighting. Um, and he walks away and then we transition to night. She's in, um, I don't know if it's the restaurant or if it's a different place where she's just kind of like, uh, crashing, but it's storming outside and she's looking out, out the window. And I kind of feel like that, that loneliness that she may feel, um, amidst the storm is what leads her to shed the programming of war and let her guard down, um, and kind of open herself up to a life after fighting. But I'm maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself there because she walks from the window and sits in a chair and she kind of cradles the gun as, as a, uh, safety measure. Like it's, it's her, it's her protection and everything. And she kind of covers up and everything. This is the moment where she is starting to realize like, okay, well maybe there's something more to this world than, you know, just being on guard at all times. So the next scene is the next day and he is tying a tie and getting dressed and ready for the day. He's setting out food and everything. Um, he looks very comfortable. Like, like he seems to be doing well in the apocalypse. Um, and that's when he sees her behind the truck and he yells down to her. He says, you go take your war to more suitable companions. This is civilian territory. And I, I really like that. First of all, he's hurt because he wants the war to end and he presumably thought that she was uh, someone that he could, uh, share his life with, share some of his life with in some capacity, but she is so still so ingrained in the war aspect of, of the world that she's now to him, a hopeless cause, a lost cause. Um, and it's, it's hurt. He's hurt by that because it's loneliness. This episode is about isolation, loneliness, trying to find a connection when there's not a connection to be found, uh, presumably. But then that's when she reveals that she's wearing the dress and he looks down at her and he says, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce it, uh, procrastinate. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he tosses her a can of food and everything. So they wander, they wander through the city together. They, they're leaving the city and then they lock eyes and she smiles at him and then they leave. And then we get the closing narration. It's very succinct, very small, very, or very short. And here's the closing narration from Rod Serling. This has been a love story about two lonely people who found each other in the twilight zone. And I just, I was really charmed by that. And I, I thought that the, um, it, that the episode as a whole was a good showcase of talent in both writing and acting. Um, it's very minimalist and very much visually 
very contingent on visual storytelling and everything. And I just thought it was really good. Um, to be honest, when I first saw this episode and as I've rewatched the episode and compiled my notes and stuff, I was kind of just blah about it. <laughs> um, I was just kind of, I was, I thought it was kind of mediocre and everything, but to be perfectly honest, like picking it apart like this and kind of going through it and, and really, uh, parsing out the, my interpretation of the themes and, and the, uh, symbolism and everything in it. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay with this episode. I think it's, I think it's actually really good. Um, it's a, it's a strong episode and I, I appreciate it for it. Just the performances are great. It's again, I, this happens from time to time, um, on the show, but I'm, it's a bummer that, uh, Charles Bronson and Elizabeth Montgomery aren't in any more episodes of the Twilight Zone because uh, I thought they did really great in this episode. Um, very, like I said, under the surface, um, uh, kind of minimalist performances, but they carry so much weight of the story in their physical performance and in their interactions and stuff that uh, I think that they really nailed it. And I thought that it was a really good episode. So, um, yeah, so that's my review of two. Let me know what you guys thought. I'm going to go into a little bit of trivia and, uh, and then I'll, I'll round out the episode with my review of an episode of science fiction theater. So, um, yeah, overall really liked two. I'm very excited to get more into season three and, uh, let's, let's go into some trivia for two. So as I said during the review, procrastinate is, uh, first of all, it's the only word that Elizabeth Montgomery's character says, and it's also the Russian word for pretty. Um, and <laughs> I said pretty. Okay. The reason, the reason that I said pretty like that, pretty, um, is that whenever I talk to my cat, I call her pretty, but I use that inflection because she's a pretty little girl. Anyway, um, pizza, you're pretty. See, she, do- she doesn't care. Anyway, um, <laughs> So another uh, piece of trivia is that these, the filming location was Hal Roach Studios in Culver City, California, and the studio was neglected and was, uh, the reason that, the reason that they shot there was that it was a neglected kind of rundown studio and it looked as damaged and, and decrepit as the script called for uh, the setting to be. Um, and the studio itself only lasted there for two years after the airing. Um, let's see. And then so Montgomery Pittman wanted to cast Sherry Jackson uh, in the in the role. Uh, but the network executive said that she was too young. She was 19 at the time. So the role eventually went to Elizabeth Montgomery, of course, who was 29 at the time. And uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, my last ish. Yeah, my last piece of trivia um, is the sound of the blaster was taken from Forbidden Planet. Uh, the scene where Robbie the robot um, exclaims that the that an Earthman's weapon was a simple blaster. I need to watch Forbidden Planet again. But again, this is another case of the Twilight Zone taking something from Forbidden Planet and using it for the show. So that's interesting. Um, let's see. Yeah, that's all the notes I really have for two. So, um, yeah, so that's it for my review of the season premiere of season three of The Twilight Zone. And, of course, I'm going to round out this episode of Anthology with a bonus review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 11, titled Marked Danger. All right, so here we go with my review of Marked Danger. 
So this episode of Science Fiction Theater originally aired on June 18th, 1955. And as is customary with Science Fiction Theater, we get a scene with Truman Bradley, the host of the show, um, kind of doing a pre-show introduction to the concept of the episode. So in this case, he is looking through a microscope and he's like, oh, hey, just studying life. Um, and he goes on to talk about evolution and how we evolved from single celled organisms and the, and, and like, uh, in water. And then we eventually evolved in demand and everything. And I kind of wondered if there was any pushback from that. Um, cause I know that, you know, the idea of evolution is a controversial one. And I assume that it was controversial in 1955. Um, but I have no idea of knowing. So anyway, the episode itself, uh, marked danger. The synopsis is a man prospecting in the desert finds a sealed experimental container containing two white mice and brings them home to his wife before calling the authorities. But when the authorities arrive, the two mice are gone with only a green residue in the container. This episode was directed by Lee Jason and written by Jerry Sackheim and Stuart Jerome with a story by credit from John Bennett. And this episode stars Otto Kruger, Arthur Franz and Nancy Gates. And what I found really interesting, just completely, obviously by happenstance, is that it's really interesting how this episode and the episode of The Twilight Zone that I just reviewed, too, are kind of of their time regarding gender roles. So, so this episode, I mean, this episode is a little bit more, uh, ridiculous about it, I think. But basically, the man, it's a husband and wife, a man finds this uh, scientific th- experiment sealed container with mice in it that's crashed in the desert and he brings it home and then he's like oh there's a reward and everything i'm gonna i'm gonna get i'm gonna get some money for us and everything and then he says now now wife don't you go opening this or, no, no no actually his <laughs> his actual um line of dialogue is don't try to be a mother to them <laughs> And then he goes to, he goes for something. He goes to get like help or something. Um, or he goes to call the, the authorities to, for them to claim it or whatever. And then she's like, uh, she ends up opening the, the cage and she's exposed to some kind of substance that changes her chemical makeup and everything. So that's kind of the impetus of the drama of the story. But what I thought was funny was that she's like, don't tell a woman not to do something if you don't want it done or something like that. And then she opens it and then uh, disaster strikes. So before that, she hated the sun. Like she hated being out in the sun. And it was uh, like something that was kind of contrived and, and set up earlier. But now she goes out into the desert seeking sunlight. And it's kind of this kind of hard sci-fi version of Poison Ivy from Batman, I think, to an extent. Like, she's kind of drawn to the sun a little bit. But I'm getting ahead of myself because when uh, the husband comes back with his friend, like the park ranger or the sheriff or something, um, and they realize, like, like, his wife is sleeping, in the bed and then he comes into the living room and he looks at the at the container and he sees that the mice are gone and he's like whoa what what could have possibly happened surely my wife didn't open this or anything or didn't do anything for it and like uh, do anything with it and like he's so adamant about it and there are a couple of scenes where like he's sitting there thinking like I there's no way that this happened I don't know how this happened because obviously she didn't do anything and it's like Okay, you're, you're employing logic into something, but like, you're so adamant that she didn't open it. Like, just ask her. Like, wake her up and ask her. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I don't know. So she, it ends up that I won't go into too much detail, but there's a medical emergency. I'll say that. Um, and what I thought was really interesting, and I don't know if this, I did a cursory Google search, so I don't, I don't know, like I didn't come up with anything on this, but I wonder if this was a common thing back then, but the solution to the medical emergency is to put a character into a, like, into a medically induced coma. But the way that they do it is that they just inject her, like they overdose her with glucose and put her in a diabetic coma. And then the plan is to get, get her out of the coma by injecting her with insulin. And I'm like, I was thinking like, holy holy crap that's what like what is that a thing like is that a thing that like they did or they do um because that's i that just seems like so just bananas to me like it seems crazy um yeah i won't give away what happens or anything but what i'll say is that overall this episode of science fiction theater was just an okay episode it was kind of not great it was it was okay bordering on just not good um it's marred by its time honestly um and really it's just it's really an uninteresting plot to me like it didn't really do anything for me um and it was funny again it was funny because truman bradley in his wrap-up scene at the end he says something i didn't put it in my notes but he said something to the effect of like whether uh like we don't know what kind of science happens when something happens or or as the result of a, a mistake of a woman or something like that or a woman's mistake and i was like holy shit like okay like yeah and i mean again it's not i i don't know it's just uh it's of its time it, this was in 1955 but i thought like holy crap that's uh that's pretty funny <laughs> or that's that's pretty crazy um yeah so that is my review of uh of marked danger uh the 11th episode of science fiction theater's first season um i'll put a link in the show notes if i can find a video of it online so you guys can watch it in its entirety um yeah and that'll do it for the kickoff for season three of anthology and season three of the twilight zone um hope you guys enjoyed my reviews on this episode and hope you uh checked out my reviews of season two of the cbs all access uh reboot um really excited and proud of that review the review series and the season it's itself i really liked this season so um hope you guys check that out next time on the podcast in episode 66 of anthology i'm going to be reviewing the arrival it's the second episode of the twilight zone's third season and my bonus review is going to be for episode 12 of science fiction theater's first uh, first season titled hour of nightmare so, yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And, uh, I'm going to put a clip from our Patreon feed. Um, once again, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Minimum, uh, donation of $1 per month gets you access to an RSS feed with a bunch of nonsense that we record before each episode. So that's uh, like a lot of B-roll audio. I think, uh, I think a lot of it's entertaining and fun. So consider donating at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. That'll do it for this episode of Anthology. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Space, Sonic the Hedgehog, Fantasy Island, Troop Zero, Onward, The Invisible Man, Vivarium, 
7,500 and Irresistible. I'm not going to list every single one <laughs> like that. This, I realized like halfway through reading those that I made a horrible mistake reading those. <laughs> so I'm not going to read the rest of these um, as I go on. But those were the new releases that I've reviewed in the first half of 2020. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Hear ye, hear ye! Know ye by these presents that I do hereby declare peace upon the entire